something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop children What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Hi, this is Mike McGinn, and welcome to You, Me, Us, Now. 1967, Buffalo Springfield, for what it's worth. In 1967, I was seven years old. I was vaguely conscious of what was happening then. I had older brothers. They had draft cards, and they got to the stage a few years later where they they had to see what their draft numbers were. There were protests all over the country. Richard Nixon was elected in 1968 with a secret plan to end the Vietnam War, and apparently the secret plan was to extend it longer and bring it into Cambodia and Laos, and there was a lot of social turmoil. So if you're going to pull out a song like For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield, you you better be prepared to back that one up with a good show. So we're going to do our best today, and my guest today is Robbie, Robbie Stern. And Robbie Stern was active in the anti-war movement here in the city of Seattle when he was a law student at UW, but that wasn't his first activism. He's currently the head of PASARA, Puget Sound Advocates for Retirement Action, doing that in a volunteer capacity. Uh, in between, he was, he was very active within the labor movement and became one of the top labor lobbyists in the state of Washington. So his activism extends for a very long time. And I'm really excited to have him. Robbie was somebody who helped me out in my campaign. And another one of the folks I got to meet where I learned about this tremendous history of activism in the city of Seattle. So Mike McGinn, you, me, us now, and today's guest, Robbie Stern. Robbie, how was that a uh, summary of your bio? How, how did that sound? That sounded good. Sounded accurate. Okay. I was working on that. Yeah. Tell me just a little bit about what you're doing with Pissarra first, just to tee well, that up. Well, I'm, I'm the president of Pissarra. Pissarra is an organization of uh, over 1,200 members. And uh, what we're working on is making retirement security real for everyone. Uh, we're going into a major shift in the demographics with this baby boomer generation going into their senior years at the same time that Income inequality is having a huge impact on uh, the vast majority of the population. We're seeing the loss of defined benefit pensions more and more, and people are not able to save because they're just not making the incomes that allow them to do that. So we're going into a period of time where we have to expand Social Security, we have to expand Medicare, or else people are going to be living out their senior years in poverty. And at the same time, we also bring a senior voice, as you know, when you were mayor, when there was the fight around creating paid sick days, um, that Pizarro was the senior voice out there talking about the need to have uh, paid sick days for our children and our grandchildren so they can take care of their families, take care of their parents if they need to. We were very active in the minimum wage campaign. Uh, So we also see ourselves as being part of the fabric of people fighting to make everyone's lives better, not just the lives of seniors better. So uh, we're very active. We have a monthly newsletter that we put out. It's 
the best non-award winning newsletter in the country. We have uh, <laughs> we have Facebook presence. We have um, uh, a website. Those are all run by younger people, which right. they would have to because I don't have a clue. We're just a very active organization who is known for turning out. We're there. We we, we show that's, up that's and the, we're there. That's the truth. If you go to a march, if you go to a rally, if you go to something at City Hall where there's lobbying, uh, Pissarra's always there. Um, the other reason I was really interested in getting Robbie on the show was part of their advocacy was to celebrate uh, the anniversary of Medicare and Social Security. And That's right. And if you're listening around the, the country... They had a special guest to their rally, who was Bernie Sanders, who was uh, interrupted by Black Lives Matters activists, and it went national. and And I and I'm guessing very, very few people in the audience, and certainly in the national audience, knew of Robbie Stern's history of activism. You know, the the guy who was emceeing the the event. So I want to get to that. We we talked yesterday a little bit about about your background in history, and one of the questions I asked you was, what motivated you to get into activism in in the first place? Well, I mean, it's a combination of factors. I'm first generation. My parents were immigrants, as was my brother. My father was a survivor of the slave labor camp in Germany uh, when the Nazis took power. My grandmother was murdered by the Nazis. So I was raised with that as kind of my background and and had a, a kind of, of legacy of figuring out how could that have happened? Why did that happen? What could have been different? Um, and so where did you grow up? I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. My parents, when they came to this country, uh, they first went to Richmond, Virginia. Then my, da- my dad got a job as a traveling salesman with one of those salesmen that ran around with those sample, big suitcases of samples. And his territory was North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And my parents were pretty poor. And so they moved to Charlotte so that he would not have so far to travel. I mean, when he traveled, he would hit the hills and turn off the engines so that he could save gas coming down the hills. And he could get home on the weekends that way so much easier. So I was raised in Charlotte, and I was raised in the segregated South. And uh, there was a woman who helped take care of me who— I grew to love and who, you know, grew to love me. I mean, she remained in my life until she died. And she would come out to Seattle and visit uh, us as an adult. And she actually spent time with my kids, which was just wonderful. But anyway, she was African-American. And I got to see, like, firsthand what her life was like. I would go to her home, and it was really tough. Her husband was a vet, disabled vet. And the place they live was a shack, and it was really hard. And what there year, was this what woman, years? What years were these? Well, this was in the uh, late forties and early fifties. So I got to see that. And my mom was a, a liberal-minded woman. My dad was totally, totally a traumatized by what he went through, and and he had a very difficult emotional life. So I became very sympathetic to the civil rights movement. And when I went to school at Syracuse University, I very quickly got involved in the civil rights movement and the student protest movement. How did you get, how did you get engaged? Describe getting to Syracuse and, and oh, well, getting involved. Well, so I, I was young when I went to Syracuse. I was 17 years old. And uh, when I, I, I had 
been in Charlotte, I had been part of a Jewish group called B'nai, uh, well, it was called AZA. It was part of the B'nai B'rith Youth Organization, which did, was wonderful because North Carolina, because because African Americans were s- totally separated, segregated, Jews were kind of at the bottom of the total, totem pole in the in the white society there. So we were pretty isolated. I I had to deal with people wearing swastikas in high school. And so there was this organization which helped train me as uh, I was one of the leaders of it, helped train me to speak publicly. Uh, I was we would travel and have debates and get there'd be speech competitions. So when I went to Syracuse, I was elected first the head of my floor on my large dormitory, and then I was elected the president of the dorm. And when the freshman elections occurred, it became apparent that the freshmen were not going to have any say-so in who was nominated for their offices, and we thought that was unfair. So we organized all the dormitories, and we formed our own party, and was called Freshmen for Free Election, and we just kicked the butts of the political parties. Following that, I became aware that there was civil rights activists in the uh, at the university and that there was actually some freedom riders who had been involved in the freedom rides into Louisiana who were coming to uh, Syracuse. I went to see, as I remember their names, it was Jerome Smith and, uh, and, and Ronnie Moore. And well, Tell us again what were freedom riders. Well, the freedom riders were people that mostly African-American, but certainly white people joined them, who challenged the segregation in the public transportation in the South, whether it's like I remember going to the train station when I was a kid. My parents were coming back on some train trip they had taken, and I was a little kid, and I wandered over into what I didn't know at the time was called the Negro section and actually drank from the water fountain, and a big burly policeman came over to me and said, what do you think you're doing? Get out of here. So the Freedom Riders were challenging segregation in public transportation, and they were so brave, and they suffered mightily. They were beaten. Their buses were torched. And this this fellow, Jerome Smith, ended up with the steel plate in his head from one of the beatings that he took. But he they came to Syracuse, and I was still kind of a Southern kid. I was sympathetic. But the line down there, uh, or the line of the liberals, was, uh, oh, you're, you're going too fast. You're trying to change things too fast. So after they spoke, I raised my hand, and I had my deep Southern accent, uh, and I said, I really support what y'all are doing, but don't you think you're trying to go a little bit too fast? And um, and they proceeded in the most gentle, loving way, putting me down and making it clear to me that what I said was idiotic. And it was kind of from that point on that I knew that I needed to become involved with the civil rights movement. How did you get engaged then? Well, I became part of the Syracuse University Committee on Equality, also got involved in the demonstrations that the Congress of Racial Equality was doing around what was called urban renewal, which was really urban removal. But probably the most significant thing I did was I was elected the speaker of the student legislature, and I ran on the platform that we should stop all athletic competition with segregated schools. So when I got to be the speaker, I ran a piece of legislation with my allies in the legislature 
that Syracuse University should end all athletic competition with segregated schools. This was in 1964, and it was extremely controversial. And uh, But what did happen, and it's kind of interesting because it's kind of similar to what we saw at the University of Missouri with the black football players there. There was a statement that was put out by the black football players and, and other black athletes in support of the legislation. Very brave on their part. You know, it was an, an incredible act of bravery. The leader of that was a guy by the name of Billy Hunter, who you may not know this, but he went on to become the executive director of the NBA Players Association. That's right. Um, anyway, so Billy uh, helped organize the black ball players who were willing to do it to sign this statement in support of it. And um, so we, we, we passed that legislation over the great opposition of the administration. They were really not happy about it. And when the administration refused to abide by it, we called the boycott of the game against VPI the next, next fall. And it was quite successful. All the while, I was also involved. I remember going to demonstrations around urban re- renewal sites. So it was it was just a slow education of this very dumb kid, me, uh, about really what was at stake and what was important. So you graduated from college. I and- did, but I got involved in the anti-war movement at Syracuse oh, as well. And how did that how did uh, that happen? What happened was that the teach-in movement began in 1965. The first school to have the teach-in was the University of Michigan. The second school to hold an all-night teach-in was at Syracuse University. What's a teach-in? A teach-in was when you uh, had people who were knowledgeable about what was going on in this case in Indochina and in particular in Vietnam would come in and talk about the history of how things got to where they were, you know, who who was on which sides, why was the United States playing the role that it was playing, and we just sat up all night and listened to speakers and had discussions. Where were the teach-ins held? In this case, it was held at Syracuse and Hendricks Chapel, which was a very large facility at Syracuse University. So at that point, I became aware that the, the war in Vietnam, I, I didn't quite have the whole picture at all. But I kind of had the understanding that that war was really screwed up. When did you put it all together? Well, I, when I came to University of Washington. When was that again? When did I, you come I to came out here in the fall of 66. I, I first got involved as a leader of the university district movement. And the university district movement was actually a, a movement that was trying to confront the fact that people, young people who were from the a counterculture at the time, were being harassed and were being uh, intimidated, in, at particularly on University Ave. And we actually staged a march down University Ave, a very large march down University Ave around that. But at the same time, there was a Vietnam Day committee that was working on Vietnam issues. And there was an SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society. But the Students for a Democratic Society chapter at the University of Washington was not very active in anti-war activity at that time. The organization that was mostly involved in anti-Vietnam work was the uh, Vietnam Committee, Vietnam Day Committee. So I got to know some people who were involved with that because they had become involved with the university district movement. Uh, the, the, The end of that year, the spring of that year, there was a demonstration at the ROTC event 
And there were a number of anti-war activists there, among whom I was one. And a fellow from, uh, from you know, the Vietnam Day Committee, or, or at least he was, he was an activist, I think his name was Gordon Peterson, stood up and said, uh, pointed at the uh, armed forces and said, this is your effing war. And the police swooped in and arrested him and other people and dragged them out. I was not one of those that that happened to. Where was this event again? This was at the stadium. It wasn't at that time. And what was the nature of the event? Why was the it ROTC there? It was the ROTC there? final year review. It was, oh. their, it was their final year review. So they're coming out to kind of perform for the right, crowd. Right, exactly, exactly. And so it was a counter-demonstration. So that evening, everyone gathered at a party. And when this song came on, uh, There's Something Happening Here, was when the cops showed up at the party. Oh, my God. Uh, and what? there was, and there was. What were they, why did they show up? Uh the tensions were beginning to rise. That's what you need to know. Tensions were beginning to rise. And what were the tensions around? Just around the protests well, and the Vietnam right. War? That's right. The protests. We were. Uh, we had targeted the cops for harassing people from the counterculture uh, on University Avenue. There was also obviously stuff going on with the civil rights movement. Right. But there, there was tension that was emerging because so, 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 I, so, I knew some... the cops that came in. Uh, uh-huh. I had had confronted them on University Avenue. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was kind of that song. That was my, you know, that was my first genuine confrontation with and the what, police. And what happened when the police arrived uh, that the night? The police came. They walked through. One person was was arrested. It was, uh, fortunately, there was a law professor there, a guy, a guy named Arvel Morris, who challenged their right to be there and— uh, but but at any rate, it was an intimidation ploy is what it was on their part. Uh, and then that summer, we made the decision that kind of the anti-war people would come in and take over SDS and turn SDS into an anti-war uh, organization. And, and you so were, the ne- were you one of those people? Yes. And then that fall, uh, we had a lot of people at the first SDS meeting. We elected our officers and ended up taking over the SDS chapter. What was your job? I don't remember, but I was a spokesperson for the organization. I don't remember what exactly my job was, but I was seen as a spokesperson, one of the spokespeople. I don't want to make it. Right. Then kind of our analysis broadened. You know, when you're looking at why are we doing what we're doing in Vietnam, what's going on? It took you back to the history of United States intervention all over the world. So you got to look at the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. You had to look at the overthrow of the, a democratically elected, uh, elected government of Guatemala, Jomo Arbenz. You look at the United States getting involved in supporting the French's, French colonial effort to recolonialize Vietnam. And you begin to see a pattern of the United States trying to impose its will on people all over the world. So we move from an understanding of this was a mistake to know this is the imperial design that the rulers of the United States have. And so we became active on a whole variety of fronts. There were a lot of demonstrations. When I was suspended from the University of Washington, um, I was suspended because we had disrupted uh, the uh, the recruitment of employees for United Fruit, 
who had played a very important role in the uh, critical role in the overthrow of the Arbenz government along with the CIA. And we felt they had no place being on campus recruiting employees. Uh, and, and it was that demonstration where I was brought up on charges at the university. So let's talk about the arrest for a minute what, or about the action. What, was, what did you do to break up the United Fruit Company's presence on oh, campus? Well, we, we, um, we marched over. There were probably 100 of us, maybe more. We marched over to Low Hall. Someone had made an appointment with him. And so we went in and we performed a guerrilla theater that kind of played out the role that they played with the uh, uh, overthrow of the Arbenz government. And then we said we weren't leaving. Either they leave or, or we stay, whichever one. And the uh, university police escorted uh, the United Fruit recruiter off campus. We followed to make sure that he actually left campus. And that was the action that I was found to have been disruptive of university activity. I was brought up on charges with four other people, and we were tried at the university. What we did the first time that they were to bring us on trial, we brought some of the Mary Knoll priests who had been a part of the uh, support effort in Guatemala, and they were going to testify at the trial. But when we had we had them speak outside the hub and then we marched down to the uh, forestry building where the hearing was to be held and they didn't want to let people in. So I I was there and I said, well, if you don't want to let us in, I'm on trial. So they opened the door and I just kind of held it open and then everyone poured in. So the the. um head of the uh, disciplinary panel, a wonderful guy. We came back to discuss it years later. Guy by the name Professor Cornelius Peck. He's no longer alive, nor is Orville Mars. Um, he was the, the chair of the disciplinary committee, and he was just, he was outraged at what was going on. So he shut the hearing down. And then um, they decided to hold the hearing. They, they, they postponed it. And they held the hearing actually in a smaller room, but they telecast it into the hub ballroom where people could watch it. And that was when they took the action of suspending me, although they gave me the option of signing a statement that I would no longer engage in disruptive activity at the university. If I did that, that I could stay. And I wasn't about signing a statement by that at that, that time because I felt like the university was really complicit and what was going on, not only in Vietnam, but what the United States was doing around the world. The Applied Physics Lab was doing some really controversial stuff, um, and I just didn't feel like I could do that. So so what would you do next? Well, I, I decided that what I wanted to do was I wanted to— I, I, I actually was arrested several times during that period. My first arrest was— uh, we had decided, SCS had decided that we wanted to give some support to uh, the Native Americans who were fighting for their fishing rights. Yeah. This was prior to the Bolt decision. And so um, I was part of a delegation that went down to Frank's Landing on the Nisqually River. Uh, that was uh, where Hank Adams and Maisel and Al Bridges were and Sid Mills. And, um, and um, we were there to give support to the uh, Native uh, Americans who were fighting for their fishing yeah. rights that they'd won in the Medicine Creek Treaty. And, um, 
and uh, that was the first time I was arrested when I stood up to protect the nets against the uh, Department of Wildlife and uh, went to jail with six other people. Uh, that was also a really that was my first arrest. That was kind of the my my that was when I lost my virginity. Um, <laughs> And um, it was really an interesting experience, too, because uh, when we were taken to the Thurston County Jail, um, the, the jailers thought that they would get the uh, rest of the inmates angry at us because uh, we, they, by taking away their TV privileges. But what they didn't take into account was the person who had donated the TV to them was Dick Gregory, who had also gotten arrested with for over the same cause as well and had stayed up nights with the inmates that were there talking about why he did what he did, had him laughing like crazy because he was a great comedian. So they were really glad to have us there to know that the struggle that Dick Gregory had been a part of was being carried on. And they were very, the inmates were really kind to us. Um, but, but, and, and when we were camping out at uh, Frank's Landing, uh, you know, there to stand in solidarity. Uh, Buffy St. Marie came and sang to oh us. My goodness. So it was really, it was really an amazing experience. Um, uh, but, but at any rate, when I got suspended, um, I remained active. I remember traveling over to Wenatchee to speak at Wenatchee Valley College, uh, traveling over to Pullman to speak at Washington State and at University of Idaho. Um, and uh, but uh, that summer made the decision to follow some friends down to the Bay Area to begin trying to do some organizing among working class people in at the point of production. So I moved down there and got got a job and I was pretty naive, got fired from that job pretty quickly um, and but but did some organizing down there. Then um uh, I got involved in a newspaper called the Movement Newspaper, um, and uh, ultimately, uh, I, I had been one of the targets of the FBI do, yeah, during let's, let's COINTELPRO. Talk, let's, let's talk about that a little yeah. bit. Uh, but before we get there, you got a, You told me yesterday your nickname in the state. Oh, well, that wasn't my nickname. That was what someone called me over in Yakima. There what did they call you? There was a newspaper over there called the Yakima Eagle. And they, 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 they called me the Castro of the Cascades. I only wish I could be as effective <laughs> as Fidel Castro was. But, uh, but, so you've yeah. made a little bit of a reputation for yourself oh, in the state by that point. Well, yeah, or someone created the reputation yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, and also uh, my wife was a, uh, an activist at the time, too, Susan Stern. She ended up being one of the Seattle Seven. Who are the Seattle Seven? Uh, oh, you don't know about the Seattle well, Seven. Tell me and all our listeners. Well, I wasn't Robbie. here at the time, okay? Uh -huh. So you should know because we had separated by that time. There was a group that was formed after I left and moved down to California called the Seattle Liberation Front. And they planned a demonstration called TDA the day after, which was the day after the sentencing of the defendants in the Chicago Seven trial. And the demonstration that occurred at the federal building in downtown Seattle turned into a real Donnybrook. And seven people, actually eight people, were indicted uh, for conspiracy to commit riot and a whole bunch of other stuff. There were seven that were put on trial because one of them they never found. And Susan was one of them. In fact, she was the only woman who was on trial. 
and they ended up doing time. Uh, wow. Not they they ended up doing time not on the charges. It was declared a mistrial. The judge, by the way, was Judge Bolt, who but, later who later granted the Native American right, fishing right, rights. Right, right, right. But at any rate, a mistrial was declared. He found the defendants in contempt of court, so they were all sentenced to time. Uh, for contempt of court. So let me go back to the FBI issue. And and just as an aside, for listeners who heard the names Dick Gregory and Buffy St. Marie, YouTube's a great resource. Dick Gregory was, you know, we all think about how subversive and political comics can be, comedians can be, but Dick Gregory was was almost the guy who created the mold back in the day. Well, Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce. (laughs) Lenny Bruce, you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, But both of them. Yeah, Yeah. right. So uh, there's a couple of topics I want to explore with you. One was you would uh, you were part of the SDS. Right. And one of the offshoots of the SDS was the Weathermen. That's right. Well, who were the Weathermen? Well, the Weathermen were uh, a number of people that I knew. They were people who came to believe that protest was not going to be enough to stop the uh, United States government from killing uh, people in Vietnam, killing American soldiers in Vietnam that there was going to have to be more more radical action that was taken. Uh, they considered, uh, they, they were looking at the writings of Franz Fanon, who talked about, you know, uprisings all over the world against not just American imperialism, but predominantly American imperialism, but also European imperialism. Yeah. So the weathermen and the, what became the weather underground believed that what had to be done was to uh, create create war within the belly of the beast, to actually take uh, action, armed action, against uh, the government of the United States. Perhaps the most famous thing, they held an action in in Chicago known as the Days of Rage, and then they ultimately went underground. Uh, They were responsible, I understand, for some bombings that occurred. Uh, They were pretty careful, particularly after several of the people who were part of the Weather Underground blew themselves up and died, they were pretty careful to try and make sure that no one was hurt by what they were doing, but they were very determined to make it clear that there were people in this country who were determined to do everything they could to bring the the war that was going on against the Vietnamese people to an end. How did uh, so you were in the thick of it? How did you feel about the weathermen at that time? Well, I was pretty sympathetic. You know, I didn't think that that was going to be a successful strategy in winning over a majority of people in our country to being against the interests of the power elite. But I certainly understood the anger that that grew out of because I was pretty darn angry myself. Uh-huh. Uh, I had friends who went to Vietnam. Uh, my best friend from when I grew up uh, went to Vietnam, and when he came back, he came and stayed with me in Seattle, and we spent lots of time together while he was decompressing with what was going on. We had many people from Fort Lewis who would come up and stay with us when on the weekends when they could get away. There was a, also an anti-war coffee shop in Tacoma that uh, I, we would go down to on occasion and talk with GIs and talk about what we were doing. And I was incredibly sympathetic to what the Vietnamese were going through, particularly when I learned the history of how this war happened and what the United States was doing. 
So I was pretty angry. So I understood the anger that led to uh, the, uh, the analysis that the weatherman came to. Uh, I, I myself did not choose to go in that direction, but it wasn't that I was, I, 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 I was not like angry at them or anything like that. I, I understood that. I, I was more interested in trying to do, you know, organizing on the ground and trying to create some type of countervailing force, right? Local right, political force, right? Yeah. And 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 I had come already by that time to the belief that the only possible countervailing force to the ruling elite, what we now call the one percent, was uh, working people, and and in particular, I felt like the unions were the most important instrument. When I was down in California, I was arrested for uh, yeah, giving support. I want I to get to California now, and, and I, we're jumping. There was another topic that you talked about, which was the FBI. You, right. were, you were kind of being tracked and followed by the FBI yes, at some I was. point. Yes, I was. I was being tracked and followed. I was considered someone who they wanted to neutralize. How did that manifest itself? What did that well, mean to be it, it followed and tracked? it manifested itself in terms of arrests, you know, trying to wrap you up in, in, in legal proceedings. It had to do with intimidation. Uh, give working me, give with me an example police. of an intimidation, for oh, example. Yeah, shooting into my car when I lived in the Wallingford area. Now, do we know who for sure it was? We don't know for sure who it was, but we know it was some cooperation between the police and the FBI. How do you know that? Well, because someone came running outside from across the street and saw the car that was driving away and was able to identify what the car was. Now, I didn't see it personally myself. Yeah. This is what I was told. I, the, the one clear, clear intimidation that I experienced with the FBI was when I was in trial in Berkeley on some very serious charges that were brought against me, that every day after court, there were anywhere from six to eight to 10 FBI agents who followed us. There were, there were five of us on trial, followed us everywhere we went for hours. Uh, and it, there was no other reason to do that than to try and intimidate us. On the last day of the hearing, when the judge in the case, Judge Talbot, dismissed the charges that was subsequently overturned. His what, were, position, what, what were the charges that were against I was, you? I was charged with possession of a dangerous weapon. What was the dangerous weapon? It was a piece of pipe. How, how did this all come about? What happened? Uh, it was after the invasion of Cambodia. We were at a demonstration at University of California at Berkeley. We became aware that we were being uh, watched. We decided we would leave that area rather than participate. And so we split up and we went to into twos and we agreed that we would meet at Shakey's Pizza Parlor. Uh, it was either on University Ave or Telegraph. I can't remember which. And so when we finally met up, uh, we were sitting at a table and uh, all of a sudden, all of these uh, law enforcement officers came in and four people were arrested immediately. I had been able to drop the pipe I was carrying on the floor. And I was carrying that pipe because I was intending to break windows. I'll, you know, it was not a smart thing to do, but that's, what I, that's where I was at the time. I dropped the pipe on the floor, so I was not arrested immediately. Subsequently, a warrant was issued for my arrest. They fingerprinted it, and a warrant was issued for my arrest. 
And by that time, I was uh, in the wind. I went underground and uh, went to the East Coast and lived underground for a while until uh, one of my uh, friends persuaded me that the charges were not serious enough to warrant my living with another identity and another name and with different color hair. I was known back there as Red Zach. Um, uh-huh. And in fact, what was interesting is when I, I did come back, subsequently, you know, I, I pleaded uh, guilty. But let's get back to the trial. Okay. You came back? So, no, so I came back, and there was what was called a preliminary hearing. And the judge was a district court judge by the name of Judge Talbot. And Judge Talbot heard all the testimony, and he ruled that there was not reasonable cause because they had seen us do nothing illegal. There was not reasonable cause other than their suspicion that we were weathermen. There was no reasonable cause to come in and arrest us. So the FBI had been out there. The the preliminary hearing went on for two and a half days, which was kind of unheard of for a preliminary hearing. And every day the FBI was outside and they would follow us and we'd take them on a on a, a, a circuitous route. We'd just keep going. And, and on the last day when Judge Talbot threw out the charges, uh, they were really angry. And so we were outside. There were literally three carloads of them. And they followed us, and we were going. There, people would uh, hitchhike up and down University Avenue. So we would pick, you know, we would start. We'd pick up a hitchhiker. We would go down to the end where the freeway was, drop them off, come back around, pick up a hitch. And they would just pull over and just follow us around. So then we decided, well, maybe we can lose them on the freeway, which was stupid. So we decided we'd drive down towards Palo Alto. So we got in the uh, freeway, and we started driving. And well, before we did that, and this was what I mean by intimidation, right. um, I was with at that time. There were three other people in the car with me. Uh, we stopped. They went over to get an orange Julius, and I, because uh, that was back when there was orange Julius, and uh, I remained in the car. And the head of the FBI down there, a guy named Don Jones, came up to the car, and he actually had a key to unlock the car, and he unlocked the car. And he and I then got in a battle with me trying to pull the car door shut and him pulling it open and me pulling it shut. Well, he had other guys with him. You know, they, if they had really wanted to do it, they, they could have gotten me, you know. But this was just this battle, and I'm sure he was really enjoying this because I, I was alone with these FBI guys. And when I got the car door shut, though, he took his fist and hit it against the car, and he said, next time I'm going to kill you. Um. And I heard that, you know, that yeah. was that was intimidating. You know, I mean, this was after, you know, the murders of a number of different people. And I and and I, I heard that. So anyway, when we were trying to lose them, we took off down towards Palo Alto. And it was then that they tried to inch us over to draw uh, to push us off. Holy the cow. Um, it's like out of a bad movie or something, yeah, Robbie. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, you know, at the time I was just living it and not thinking about it. You know, yeah. it was just how it was. But at any rate, but those the the Judge Talbot's decision to throw out the evidence was over overturned by a, the court a court of appeals that was appointed by Ronald Reagan. So charges were restored. We were bound over to Superior Court, and then there was another probably nine months to a year of hearings, and then ultimately I pleaded guilty. Fortunately, the sentencing judge was a guy by, by by the name of Lionel Wilson. He was a mayor too, 
Mike. He oh, was okay. Mayor. He was elected the mayor of Oakland after he was a judge. And uh-huh. uh, might have been, I'm not sure, might have been the first African-American right. mayor in, in Oakland. And he read over the record, and he was just, he just thought it was outrageous, ridiculous. So he, he said to me, you know, look, I, you've pleaded guilty to a felony. Can't do anything about that, but you've been doing great work. You know, not my anti, my protest work, but I also was involved at that time in helping out with the founding of the country doctor because I was coming back right. and forth and, and doing other kind of stuff. And so he said, so in six months, we'll drop it to a misdemeanor because it was a felony. And in 18 months, if you stay out of trouble, then we'll uh, expunge your record, which is what happened. And you got out of Dodge then? I went back to Seattle. Well, actually, I went back to Woodby Island, and I lived on Woodby Island for about two years. You must have been just wrung out at that point. I was wrung out. I was wrung out. Now, you know, look, you know, there are people that had it so much worse than me. I mean, you know, you talk about the Black Panther Party. You talk about uh, people who were, you know, uh, people of color who were struggling at the time. Right. It was so much worse than what I had it, but I was probably a little bit of a, a of a, you know, I was this middle class kid, and coming up against the power of the state, you know, it, I think it it did it wrung me out. I was paranoid. I was a mess, and it took me a little while to regather myself. <laughs> but I did come out of that period thoroughly convinced. Number one, that we needed to change fundamentally the system that we lived under and that the force that was the most had the greatest institutional possibility of making that change or at least countering the power of the multinational corporations and the power elite and you know the politicians who do their bidding was the labor movement and so i had made a decision that i really was interested in doing what i could to try to help build the labor movement and so uh, after— So what'd you do? Well, what'd you do? what I did, I went back. I had two quarters left in law school. I went back. I finished law school. I took and passed the bar. And then I went to work as a gardener at the University of Washington so I could get involved in uh, a labor union. And there was a union there, the Washington Federation of State Employees, Local 1488. I learned a lot then, and I was also at the time— uh, part of a group of uh, construction workers who were uh, black, his, uh, Asian women, who were trying to get the building trades to open up to people right. of color. And they really urged me to go into the building trades and to be a white voice calling for the union to stop fighting people of color and start uniting to fight who the real enemy was. Um, or, or the real, yeah, the real, the real, so the you, real challenge. So you became a pipe fitter. I did. I went to work first at Todd Shipyards as a marine pipe fitter. I worked there for a year, and then I went to Washington Natural Gas. It was Washington Natural Gas at the time, where I became a gas fitter, and I worked uh, fitting pipe on the street for five years. Then I went and was a dispatcher at Washington Natural Gas for a couple of years, and then I became a uh, what they call customer service, which was appliance repair. And I did that for another three years. So I walked, worked in the trade for 11 years um, and was active in my union, the uh, United Association of Plumbers and Pipefitters, Local 32, 
uh, was elected to various offices, um, was elected to be a delegate to the King County Labor Council and the Washington State Building Trades Council, and then became active in those councils. So that teed up the ne- your next part of your career. So the next part of my career, I decided that I really ought to do something with my law degree, but uh, I hadn't kept up with my continuing legal education credits, which I understand you haven't either. <laughs> I've, uh, I've been on inactive status for about eight years. Right, so my right. CLE. I was, inactive, <laughs> I was inactive for 10 years. There's a lot of CLEs out there waiting for me yeah, if I want to. Well, it was just a whole new relearning for me. Right. But I did uh, take the bar again and passed it. And almost a month or two after I passed it, opened up this little uh, law office uh, at the Smith Tower with uh, in the, uh, I rented an office from this other law firm, wonderful, wonderful people. The, the King County Labor Council bought 50% of my time to do, I, I wasn't expensive, bought 50% of my time to do uh, coalition building and policy development. And the president there was Rick Bender. And then Rick went on to become the president of the Washington State Labor Council. So in 1993, he asked me to come over and become his special assistant and uh, in-house counsel, which I did. Then he subsequently named me his lead lobbyist, which I did for 15 years. So you you ended up just being really just up at the, in many ways, near the top of the labor movement in the state, working on lobbying Olympia and building coalitions and working on labor issues uh, for a while. That's right. That's you, right. you showed me when you came in because I asked. There was, It turned out that former mayor Greg Nichols and... Governor Gregoire both named a Robbie Stern Day when yeah. you retired. Yeah. What do you what that do you, that in a buckle buy you a cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> it Actually, was it's more than a buck, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny because I I wanted to look at them just to see how they would how they would handle you know the SDS and the arrests and the Vietnam War press protesting and you know and of course the the resolutions focus primarily on your very long and illustrious career representing the labor movement. And, and there's just a couple of joking asides. I think Greg Nichols one, Greg Nichols joke was that you had used up your get out of jail free cards. But I guess part of the reason I wanted to look at it is because it's kind of interesting how we airbrush history a little bit about, about the conflicts and the turbulence of the past. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the best example of that, I mentioned this to you earlier, is how they've tried to airbrush the history of Dr. King. Yeah. You know, and that to me is the most noticeable example of it. You know, they don't want the real the real nature of Dr. King's willingness to challenge power and to tie in together opposition to the war, to the civil rights movement and human rights and the war on poverty. They don't want to they don't want to, you know, raise those and and make those the you know the essence but i i believe those were in many ways the essence who who, who dr king was right it wasn't all it wasn't so all wasn't airbrushing all... me is a whole lot easier <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it wasn't all kumbaya and it, isn't it great if everybody works together right, yeah dr right. king was creating a right. lot of confrontation that's right because he wanted people to focus on why right. the confrontation was there right yeah, nonviolent confrontation, but right. that was that was a tactic. Right. That was a choice of tactics. Right. Let's bring her up to the present. We talked a little bit about the Pissarro work work earlier, but what I'm really intrigued by is, you know, as mayor, I during my four years was when the Occupy movement came up, and it was about inequality. Um, we had 
serious incidents of in in our city that in particular the shooting of uh, and the killing of, of John T. Williams and the issues that raised around the treatment of Native Americans in the city, um, the Department of Justice uh, investigation into inv- in excessive use of force and the focus that the city had to make on that and many of these things you know Occupy was happening around the country but we kind of preceded the things that, that kicked off the Black Lives Matter nationwide. My impression is that this is we've just entered a new era. A lot of people want to say that the Occupy movement didn't focus on anything in particular, and I think it, it has. Minimum wage, paid sick leave, well, parental leave. Well, it developed the whole concept leave. of the 1%. Right. Well, you had to change the conversation before That's you could right. change the policy. That's right. And I, I think the same thing is going on with, with Black Lives Matter. So one of the things I was interested is just from your perspective, you know, looking at from your own experiences to the present and observing the present, you know, what's the same and what's different? And, and, and how does this era feel? What does this era feel like to you? Well, you know, I think that back in the 60s, there was a lot of hope. There was a lot of hope, you know, that we really could make the difference. I mean, we thought we were going to make the revolution. And, and I think now there is, I mean, I'm so impressed with these young, the young people who are engaged. I mean, right now we see this movement developing at university campuses around the country. I mean, I was listening to the reports today, and there's stuff happening all over the country. Um, I think that there is, that the Black Lives Matters movement, I mean, first of all, it's a continuum, so nothing should be seen in isolation. You're right, from Occupy to Black Lives Matter, I mean, there's a continuum of things that are going on that it's not like immigration reform doesn't fit into this either. Or, or, or climate justice. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But I think that the Black Lives Matters movement is, is given the opportunity for this new generation who, frankly, I think has just does not buy into the color separations that exist in our country. You know, they just... Many of them. I shouldn't say all right. of them because they just arrested two 19-year-old kids in Missouri for threatening the lives of African-Americans in, at the University of Missouri. But many, many young people are not willing to tolerate, one, the kind of, of institutional racism that exists in our country that's just awful and that needs to be fought very hard. Uh, they're not willing to do that. And they're not willing to to just say, yes, I will accept my white privilege and enjoy that. And I'm 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 really I'm taken by that. I'm I'm appreciative of that. Um, I think that it's a very, very important movement. And I look forward to seeing how it develops. Now, one of the things that I saw from my own experience um, as a young person, not the most sophisticated not understanding, you know, kind of the arc of life is it's easy when you're in your head and and not basing what you're doing on experience. Uh, I mean, over a long period of time to make mistakes. Certainly we made lots of mistakes, but I think that it's it's um, very exciting to see young people in motion the way they are. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to be supportive 
uh, and, to and, the to the extent that we can be. And you're in a position to do that as president of Pesora. I and, hope so. And, and you do it. I hope so. It certainly is our intention to do that. Uh, we think we think it's very important that we give support to our young people. We also see that what we're doing is also fighting for these young people. You know, when I was 27, 28, 30, 35, I wasn't thinking about what my life was going to be like when I got to be older. You know, I, just, I was in the moment or maybe thinking a few years out. You know, I knew when I was 28 or 29 I wanted to work in the labor movement and I right. had a pathway to do that. But I wasn't thinking about what life, how was I going to live, what was going to be my source of income, what was my life going to look like when I got older. Um, and one of the points that we made on August 8th is that uh, we had a number of speakers before Bernie Sanders got on. And the first speaker was the head of the NAACP, uh, Gerald uh, Hankerson. And he talked about what a critical role Social Security plays in the black community among black seniors. So for so many, it is almost the only source of income and that how important it is to expand it. I'm not good at remembering numbers, but it was something like over 40 percent of African-Americans who have Social Security. It is the only source of their income. Um, And so I think that it's not something that young people necessarily think about in terms of the things that, you know, that this is this life is a long arc. And, you know, when you see black youth, you know, being shot and killed. It's hard not to focus on that. That's absolutely calls out for a response. It has to, as does, you know, experiencing the kind of racism that, for example, the African-American students are experiencing at various institutions around the country. You have to focus on that. I, I totally get that. We were very focused as young people on what we were experiencing as young people as well. From my perspective now as a 71 year old, who has tried to be, you know, a progressive activist for now since I was eight, 17 years old. Um, I'm also aware that the issues that we're dealing with around seniors being able to live their lives with economic security and dignity and respect is also part of the fabric of that larger progressive movement and that we want that for our kids and our grandkids. Right. We want them to be able to have that. And for those listening, August 8th was the day that Black Lives Matters activists basically seized the stage of a, an event organized by Robbie Stern and Pissarra. Well, um, by the Social Security Works Washington Coalition. Got it. Yeah. Got it. When the, the Black Lives Matters activists came up on stage and interrupted, what were you feeling at that moment? Well, I, I, I really don't know what I was feeling. I was just reacting and responding. Um, we tried to we we had tried to make we had heard some rumors that there might be a disruption and so i had asked someone to see try to make contact and see if there was some way that we could maybe give them a place to speak or or on this on the program uh and when they first came up there we had decided because we hadn't made contact if in fact it happened um that we would offer them the opportunity to speak after uh Senator Sanders spoke. And uh, so uh, that was the first thing I did was I said, listen, um, 
we'll give you an opportunity to speak after Senator Sanders, and they rejected that out of hand. Then when they wanted the four and a half minutes of silence to commemorate the first anniversary of the killing of Michael Brown, I was told by someone who was on the stage who I had thought was with them that if there was the four and a half minutes of silence, that they would then end the disruption. So I actually played a role in quieting people down. There were people that said, well, there were some people that weren't quiet. The vast majority of people were quiet during that four and a half minutes. And there were Pizarro people who I spoke to afterwards who were trying to quiet people down who were, in fact, uh, not respecting that. But it turned out that the person who had told me that was not authorized to speak on their behalf. And and so I was just, you know, I was talking to my co-MC, Soshi Makovich, um, and was talking to our head of security, Mike Andrew, and trying to figure out what to do. And the decision was made, we were not going to have them arrested. Now, I can't say that was my decision. That was a decision that was made by Mike and Soshi, and I think they were right, um, that we were not going to create a situation where there was any effort to try and forcefully remove them from the stage. So at that point, when it became clear that I that we were not going to be able to allow Senator Sanders to speak. And Senator Sanders was really angry. And he was he was actually and his wife was on stage yelling at me, take control, take control. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, how, how do you do that other than so 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 at some point so at some point um I'm I I made the decision when it became clear that after the four and a half minutes of silence that uh they were not going to end the disruption. They were then trying to get Sanders to come up and have a, a discussion with them, and Sanders was not about to do that, that I was going to have to end it. Now, how was I feeling at the time? I don't know how the heck I was feeling. I was just trying to respond to the situation. I, probably my blood pressure was at about 220. Um, you know, it was very, very one of the most intensely difficult situations I've ever been in. I mean, there was... 5,000 people out there, uh, probably, you know, three-fifths of whom had come for Senator Sanders and the others had come for the, you know, for the event itself. Um, and um, so afterwards, I, you know, I was just, my face was flushed. It was very difficult. Fortunately, my whole family was there. They were around me and were taking care of me. And, and, and also, my daughter was getting married the next weekend, on Whidbey Island, and her in-laws had come out just for the event, and they were with us too. So, so you had was, a big you had a big support group. Uh, I had a big support <laughs> group, and um, and at the time when I got done, I I actually said to my son and daughter, I said I'm too old for this, um, and they said to me, No, you're not. You know, you're not. But that's how I felt at the moment that. I, 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 I didn't feel like I had handled it all that well. I just was very self-critical. And, and, and then subsequently, I just kept hearing from people, you just did a wonderful job. You handled it just so well. It was such a difficult situation. And I came at some point to be at peace with it, although it was very difficult for me to see it uh, uh, both characterized as a Bernie Sanders rally. Which yeah. And to also have lost the opportunity 
although I understand why it happened, the opportunity to elevate the issue of the need to expand Social Security and Medicare. And, and, and I'm really sorry that he only came out with his platform on, uh, on Black Lives Matter and the police shootings and stuff after the event in Seattle. Um, that was, uh, you know, if he'd come out with his platform on that before, uh, then maybe we would not have had to deal with the disruption in the way that it occurred. But that's all history now, isn't it? You toil on lo- local issues, right? You toil on this and that, you know, a city issue or a state issue. And every once in a while, you feel like you can get to do something that resonates beyond your borders. Right. We were with August 8th. What our goal was, was we were trying to project the discussion over the need to expand Social Security and Medicare onto the presidential debate in 2016. We really had the intention of trying to inject that into the whole electoral campaign. Right. And that was perhaps the thing that I mourn the most, is that what happened meant that that message was eclipsed by what, what, what occurred. And so from our perspective, having worked on that for months and months and months, it was something, while I understand what happened, uh, I, I, I still mourn the opportunity that was lost to really project that onto the national stage. Well, you've written a couple of nice, thoughtful pieces subsequently, too. And uh, if people want to get more of your thinking on that, they can find that as well. Because you were trying to find that balance point between the the needs of the Black Lives Matters activists to speak up, as well as the issues that you were fighting for. Yeah, yeah. It was a tough one. It was a really tough one. Well, I really enjoy this show because of the opportunity to bring on the activists of all ages. And I love working with the younger activists too. I've had some opportunity to do that in the last year. And, and, and one of the reasons I like to, to bring on folks that have been doing it a while is because I, I think if people could hear from each other about their experiences, maybe they could shorten that learning curve a little bit and be even more effective as activists. That's part of the reason I love doing the show. So I really, really enjoy having you here. Well, I thank you for, for inviting me. We also are trying to be multi-generational in our work as well, and thank you for having me here. So I get to open with the song, and it turns out that I was going to pick the exact same song that Robbie picked uh, for What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield. Uh, he thought of it first and emailed it first, but I was thinking of it. And he gets to pick an ending song, and he told me he wants to finish with I'm Not Ready to Make Nice by the Dixie Chicks. Tell us why you picked it, Robbie. Well, um, when I first heard that song, I felt like it best, it spoke to me. It's like, I'm not ready to make nice, and I'm not ready to give up. I'm really angry about what the corporations, about what the 1% have done, not only to the people in this country, but people all over the world. And I'm just determined to do whatever I can to try and turn that around. I'm not ready to make nice. A price, and I'll keep paying. 